it is Constitution Day week. And instead of saying how many years it's been since the Constitution, perhaps we should start looking at how many years we're going to have it left. Next on Principles and Policies. Welcome to today's edition of Principles and Policies. I'm your host, Barry Sheets, the Executive Director of the Institute for Principled Policy. And along with me today is our co-host, the Vice Chairman of the Institute, my fellow analyst and very good friend, Chuck Michaelis. Again, it's great to be back with you. This is like our sixth week in a row that we've actually done a program live face-to-face. Well, absolutely. Well, again, that just is another, uh, I guess, result. I was almost going to say symptom, but I, that may be too, a, little, a little too corny and ironic. This is another result of the fact that we're starting to get open back up in this state, that things are starting to get back to a remote semblance of normality. Um, and that means that I've been on the road more. I've been traveling. I've been going to meetings. I've been coming up to the state house for, for things going on with the legislature. And so usually Thursdays finds me being able to come to Shea Michaelis and to the studio, the live <laughs> studio that we've got set up out here. Uh, to do these recordings because, well, uh, first of all, we were having some trouble because, uh, I, you know, I'm running on a, oh, I don't know, 10, 11, 12-year-old laptop box, <laughs> um, uh, and I'm down in the country where cell towers, uh, it's not, you know, you can't just throw a stone and hit one every direction you go, um, and we were having just trouble keeping a signal going uh, in order to do this recording over Skype, which is how we have been doing it. But, uh, yeah, it's just been nice to be able to come up and spend some time with, uh, with Chuck, our, my vice chair, my buddy, and talk about things and kind of delve into what we're going to talk about with you. And, well, it just so happens that the day we're recording this, this is on Thursday. This is September the 17th. Uh, you're going to be hearing it on the 19th. But it's uh, Constitution Day for those of you who uh, were paying attention or even those who weren't paying attention. It's still Constitution Day. And that's the day that we're celebrating that we've made a, uh, I wouldn't say a national holiday, but it is a recognized holiday now uh, that uh, we are celebrating the uh, ultimate um, uh, adoption of the United States Constitution. Not so much the adoption. Well, okay, it's the, the signing. This, the this signing is of. the signing of the document that went to the states for ratification. That's right, because it took a couple of years for the final it, adoption. Yeah, it took. It took, uh, well, yeah, actually over two, years, over two years if you count the fact that when the Constitution came into being, be- became active, and that right. was when nine states had signed into the into the compact. Right, that's Article 7. That, that left four <laughs> states that were not in the compact yet. Right. Uh, and I can tell you the four states. Uh, this is an important piece of history that you need to know. Uh, and then I'm going to go back to another piece of history you need to know. Uh, the four states were North Carolina, uh, Virginia, Rhode Island, and New York. Right. Now, Virginia and New York came in, I believe, in time to vote for George Washington to be president of the, the United president States. Of the United States. Right. And, and we know that because the Federalist Papers, which is a document that most people learn about in school, they may never read them, but they hear about them in school. Were a series of articles written in the New York newspapers in order to support 
the ratification of the Constitution. Yes. They weren't written before the Constitution was done. They were written to answer what they considered to be the main objections from a group called the Anti-Federalists, who were uh, those who leaders who were at the convention who voted against the adoption of the Constitution because they didn't feel there were enough protections for individual liberties and for states' rights in a document that was mainly drafted and put forward by the Federalist faction, which were the factions who believed in a strong central federal government and a weak subservient state governments. Yeah, the New York New York was a strong uh, stronghold, if you will, of anti-federalist thought. With the exception of Alexander Hamilton. Well, that's the beauty of it. Now, uh, uh, if you read the, the three guys who were federalists, who uh, who were the the uh, the papers, because they were written by three people. Um, they were written by John Jay, who wrote, I think, five of them, maybe? Right, four or five of them. Four or five. Uh, Hamilton. Right, Alexander uh, Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton and uh, Madison. James Madison. And between right. those two, they wrote the lion's share. Uh, I think they're fairly evenly split. I can't tell you the exact numbers of, of the papers that were sure. written by. But you could actually, once you've read enough of both of them, yeah, you can start to pick out the styles and see who who wrote what. Right. And then there are some Federalist papers where there's a question. There's a ghosting. Yeah, um, it's like question who ghosted who. Who on ghosted this one. who on this one? Um, but they wrote under the name Publius. Publius. That's right. Publius. Yes. Uh, who was a Roman uh, senator? Right. Uh, and they understood Roman history. I'm actually I've never been much of a student of Roman history, but I've been watching some short YouTube videos. That really have opened up my not, and I'm like putting things together. I'm like, I get it now. Why did this happen then? Why did that happen then? Why? How did the Roman uh, the Roman Republic suddenly go to the Roman Empire? And if you watch it, folks, it's amazingly, it's actually frightening to see how much it looks like now. Well, I can give you a great YouTube series that you could watch as well that can show you from where they went from empire to where they started falling apart. Yeah. It's called Asterix the Gaul. Yeah. It's a cartoon. Okay. <laughs> it's it's a French cartoon. They, they've dubbed them in English, they, but, they, but it's basically the misadventures of the Romans trying to subjugate the French. The, the Gauls. The Gauls, the Gauls. yeah. Right. Actually, uh, it took them a while, and uh, that that's essentially where Julius Caesar won his stripes, was right. subjugating the Gauls. And it, it wasn't all conquest. No, it was not. It had a lot to do with uh, bringing them in. He promised to get them into the empire. He says, we're not just going to make you subjects. And there's a big difference between a subject and a citizen of Rome. He goes, we're going to make you citizens of Rome. Right. And the Senate was like, mm, no. <laughs> and he, and Julius Caesar said, yes. And guess who won? Caesar won. Caesar won. But, but Caesar had to do an awful lot of explaining because most of the Gauls that they were subjugating um, followed a, a very interesting um, theological bet. It was called Druidism. Druids, yep. There were many of them were Druids, which meant that they were like nature worshippers. Um, very tough, even with a, shall we say, pantheistic um, structure such as what the Roman Empire was, with the ultimate exception of, you know, Caesar's, Caesar becomes the ultimate, uh, you know, God to worship. Eventually, yes. Eventually, yes. So, so it made for some uh, touch and go negotiations. When we say Caesar, we don't mean Julius because Julius did not enter the the pantheon. Right. Later emperors declared themselves 
uh, I, I maybe Augustus. Augustus was Caesar's uh, adopted grandson, if I remember right, but mm-hmm. he was really a nephew. Right. Um, but uh, okay, we don't we don't want to go into Roman history. Nonetheless, uh, let's go back because we got off sure, on, on Publius, but we got off on. I, I want to. We want to go back and watch some of those old asterisk cartoons. Uh, and and it's interesting they would use the X. Yeah, because uh, one of the big players in the on the Gauls who who made life so rough on uh, Julius Caesar was Vercingetrix, mm-hmm. or Vercingetrix. It depends on on who you listen to how, how it's pronounced. A Gaul who uh, 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 Napoleon or a Napoleon Julius Caesar had a terrible time uh, su- uh, subduing. And eventually did, and then he was strangled in what they call in, in Rome when a, uh, a general would conquer territory, he got what they called a uh, triumph. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, we say someone was triumphal. Well, a triumph in Rome was when you got to, if you came to the Senate and said, I earned this and this and this and this, and they say, you may have one triumph. And a triumph was this giant parade. If you've ever watched this awful movie, uh, that's worth watching because it's so bad and it's such a big spectacle. That's uh, um, Cleopatra, okay, with uh, um, um, Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor, right. and and I'll, I'll be quite honest, she's worth the price of admission. Um, and uh, um, uh, Richard Burton was uh, um, Mark Anthony. Was, uh, Mark, uh, no, I think it was C. I think it was Julius. Was he? Did he play Julius C? I've I've only seen bits of it. I've never seen the whole movie. Uh, but there's a triumph in that, and okay. the, the part where they're having this big thing where the dancers are dancing in the streets and they're dragging these giant statues and all these captured animals and all the captured prisoners of war. Well, at the end of that thing, they drag them all up to I forget where it was, the one of the big places in Rome, and they'd strangle all the prisoners uh, unless the crowd had called for some of them to be spared mm-hmm. uh but uh yeah uh, watch that if you want to see a kind of a depiction i'm sure it's a fraction of what an actual roman uh, triumph was like but that that's sure. what it was okay let's go back to constitution day yes please the constitution that was signed on september 17th had one of its most important elements missing what was it well there were a number of elements that were missing, but the biggest element would be a Bill of Rights. Bingo. The Bill of Rights was not attached to the Constitution. That's right. There was there was thinking that there needed to be one. And there were discussion at the convention at, about that. About how to do it. And basically what they decided was, in a true Federalist move, if you understand what we mean by federalism, we don't mean the federal government deciding how what the states can do. It's... The state governments deciding what the federal government can do. They Correct. decided to leave it up to states to attach the Bill of Rights. Now, who composed the, the Bill of Rights? Well, in a lot of cases, it was... Um, George Mason. James Madison and George Mason. <laughs> it was George Mason. Madison helped, and he was the, the Federalist who carried what was basically an anti-Federalist document, which is the Bill of Rights, right. Individual Liberties before Congress in order to get it ratified. And Hamilton uh, was opposed to the Bill of Rights. Oh, strongly opposed to yeah. that. Who later came around, basically said, yeah, it was a good idea. Now, how much of that was politics? I don't know. Most of it, probably. Uh, I, uh, you'll find that Barry and I, uh, the uh, uh, play notwithstanding, and the books, not with, uh, some books notwithstanding, not big fans of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was a monarchist. 
who some way wormed somehow wormed his way into into uh, uh, Washington's staff and became essentially an adopted son. You have to remember George Washington had no children. Had no children. That's right. Uh, was probably sterile due to the fact that he had smallpox very late in life. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and um, Martha had children, and he had brothers who had children. Yeah, d- just to kind of put a, a point to help everybody get a reference point. Alexander Hamilton, the reason why we have trouble with him, if you read one of his most well-known pieces outside the Federalist Letters, it's a thing called Report on Manufactures. Yes. And Alexander Hamilton's Report on Manufactures, if you read it, it makes people like Mike DeWine look like caveman conservatives. Yes. <laughs> with the, with their restraint against um, federalizing and taxing everything that moves, breathes, or takes up airspace in your, in your locale. Alexander Hamilton's report on manufacturers, he wanted to lay a tax on anything that wasn't nailed down. Yeah, essentially. And tax the nails. To use that, and what he wanted to do was use that to... to uh, Bolster a strong central government. Bol- well, partly. Part of it was that Alexander Hamilton was what we would call a mercantilist. True. A mercantilist was someone who believed that the government should be involved in international trade. And that money that he was talking about taxing would be used to build a navy and do all these things to, in fact, uh, give favored companies and persons who were involved in international trade would subsidize them. So basically what Alexander Hamilton wanted was the American version of the East India Company. That's exactly what he wanted. He was building it on a British model that was already there. It was already there. That's right. The East India Company. If anybody's ever watched like the Pirates of the Caribbean stuff or or any of these historic swashbucklers, you know that the, the big villain... And all these movies with pirates is the East India Company, who were more piratical than the pirates. Were. <laughs> yes, they, they were. They were awful. Uh, it was. It was. They put their boot on the neck. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, in India, mm-hmm. they basically oppressed the Indians and and stole their their goods for you know. Uh, uh, essentially, went in and took over production of dyes and and spices and tea. Right. Uh, and did the same thing in like Brit- in British and, Jamaica and, and in the in the Caribbean islands, etc. Listen, you you hear the horrors of the slave trade, and they were horrible. And pe- they, people had it bad on our shores uh, in the slave trade. Not anywhere near as bad as they had it in Jamaica, Trinidad. Some of these places on these sugar plantations. Sugar plantations, that's right. They The average lifespan of a slave in the sugar plantations was something like 17 months. One of the thing, one of the places they called hell on earth. Hell on earth. Because, because it really, really was. The deep fear was that someone would be sold to someone on the triangle route who would, who would you know, if, if, if uh, the slaves were a little too much trouble... They would sell them to a, 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 a slave buyer who would sell them then in the Caribbean, which means they were essentially, it was a death sentence. Right, exactly. Uh, and it was not a pleasant death sentence. You'd much rather be hanged by the neck until dead than you would be worked to death on a sugar plantation. And it's horrible. Um, so uh, keep that in mind. Uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, the, again, the play 
and Ron Chernow's book, notwithstanding, I've, I've read Chernow's book, and the guy who wrote the play, uh, the, uh, the Hamilton play, admitted he had writ, read one book yeah. on Hamilton, and it was Chernow's book. Which is a hagiographic. It's a hagiography. I mean, it's like, uh, um, oh, yeah, they admit that he, oh, he was a, kind of a scoundrel here and there, but he really wasn't a bad but guy. But he was a lovable scoundrel. He was a lovable scoundrel. No, he was awful. Um, now, does that mean that later in life he necessarily held on to that? No, I think he had something of a conversion not long before. Remember, the man who shot him was Aaron Burr. Right. Also a scoundrel. Essentially, it was two scoundrels shooting it out. Fair and, enough. And I would say don't believe the nonsense that, that Hamilton threw away his shot. Hamilton provided the pistols. And the fact is that the pistols he provided had a hair trigger. I think Hamilton got nervous and fired and, and accidentally early. fired early. Um, so I don't I don't believe this. Uh, my son-in-law has a T-shirt. He went to see a play, the play, and I think he bought somebody bought him a T-shirt or he bought it or something. It says, "I am not throwing away my shot." That's one of the lines from I think yes. from the play where he, he uh, you know, he mm-hmm. was not sacrificing himself. Uh, but there are people who legitimately believe that at the end um, that he had converted and really was uh, uh, attempting to bring himself around. If you'll recall, we had talked when Barry and I were involved in third-party politics in the early 2000s. And uh, uh, there was a suggestion. We were in the Constitution Party. And... Uh, there was a suggestion uh, that we come to, together in in, a con- in these constitutional societies, state constitutional societies. Right. And it was based on a, a recommendation by uh, Hamilton, who had recommended these constitution si- societies to preserve the Constitution, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I can still remember suggesting at one point, I said, we might want to avoid this, the uh, Confederation of... Uh, uh, conservative constitutional parties. Yes, yeah, CCCP. And I said, yes. except the problem is that CCCP, and uh, we, I don't think we can survive the PR nightmare from that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I remember sp- that. I speak Russian and, and or, uh, speak. I took a little Russian in college, uh, and I can read a tiny little bit of Russian still, a little bit. And uh, CCCP in Russian isn't CCCP, it's SSSR. Right because uh, they have a different alphabet. But I still say, yeah, I'm not sure we can deal with the CCCP thing. Though. So uh, so we need to avoid that. Yeah. But that being said, mm-hmm. uh, the Bill of Rights were essentially a creation of the states. Yes, they were. And if you actually read the ones that got to Congress to be sent out for the ratification votes, there were 12. Yes, there were. Instead of 10, there were 12. Absolutely was. Now... Believe it or not, one of those twelve that wasn't uh, the the two that weren't ratified. One was ratified in nineteen ninety two. One or two. Is Nin- later later than that because the Republicans were in power. I the think I'm wait you to, could be. I, I'm going to look it up. Doesn't I, matter. I, I think it was so. in, I think it was nineteen ninety one. Doesn't matter. It was in the nineteen nineties. Uh, mid early to mid 1990s and that was the one that basically said 
it this was in the original bill of rights that was not ratified you cannot raise the pay of congress as they're while they're sitting in an active congress in other words if a pay raise bill is enacted it can't go into effect until the next election now this is why i'm not a big newt gingrich fan Newt and the boys came up with a way around that. I think it's still in violation of both the spirit and the letter of that amendment. But what they did was they turned pay raises over to a commission. Yes, indeed. And so basically everybody got, and the commission basically made sure that everybody got a raise, an inflation raise, quote unquote, every year. Go ahead. Okay, I've got it here. It was the 27th Amendment. And 27. that was the, uh, you can't vote yourself a pay raise amendment. It was proposed September of 1789. Yeah. It was final ratified May 5th of 1992. 92. You were right. 202 years, 233 days between <laughs> introduction and ratification. Now, what's the difference between that and, and some of the... What happened in the late 19th century? When constitutional amendments were proposed, they began to put seven-year limits on their ratification. Mm -hmm. If it's not ratified inside seven years... It's a dead letter and has to start all over again. This is what happened with the ERA in the in the uh, late seventies mm -hmm. yep. and early eighties. The seven years expired, and they actually tacked on three more, and still couldn't get the job done. Yep. And if we will recall, under under the Obama administration, they tried to get the Supreme Court to intervene and say the seven year and ten year limit was unconstitutional. Right. Except that. You can't cite a single thing in the Constitution that says you can't set a time that limit. You can't on set it. a time limit on it. That's but, right. But it, I think, two, which is our argument about Article Five as yeah, well. Yeah. So Similar I think argument. I think two two hundred and two, almost two hundred and three years. It's a long time, but you know what? That's a great amendment. Too bad they didn't outthink Newton the boys. Well, yeah, isn't that isn't that the case? Now, um, but anyhow, so I looked at the whole list of the twenty seven amendments. Probably the next longest amendment that, that took place only took about three and a half years from right. introduction to it took two a little about two two and a third years from the time the original Bill of Rights was introduced to the time that the ten were adopted. So it took they were pretty long from the introduction to yeah. adoption to get the Bill of Rights. But then once that happened, then you started seeing things falling into the so many days category of from introduction to adoption, introduction to adoption, especially after the 12th Amendment, Chuck, and 13th and 14th, obviously, because what we saw, as we've talked about when we do our Constitution classes, is that we had a philosophical change from what you call negative law theory to positive law theory. Right. And we went from Congress shall not do X, Y, and Z, which was the Bill of Rights and basically Amendments 11, 12, 13, no, 11 and 12, excuse me, 11 and 12, 13 on became positive law amendments. Congress shall have the authority, the power, the right, blah, 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 to, by appropriate legislation, do all these things and then some. Ba -da 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 -da. 12 is where the shark got jumped. Yeah, 12 yeah. is where the shark got jumped. Yeah. Uh, but then 27 is the Congress shall not give themselves a pay raise, pass a bill that gives themselves a pay raise. Right. Because it was part of the original package. So it is it is the only negative law amendment that is beyond the 11th Amendment. That's right. Okay? So you got the first 11, and then you got 27. Okay? So 12 of the amendments are all negative law theory. All the rest, the other 15, 
all expand the power of the central government through Congress and legislation yeah. and administrative rule, etc., to the point we are now, where instead of counting the number of years that we've had a constitution, we're counting the number of years we might have left under this constitution. We had, That was a major change, spurred on by the Civil War and the Reconstruction Congress, yeah. um, spurred on by the progressive movement, spurred on by the advent of not only cultural but political Marxism and uh, socialism, which has reached us in so many ways already, Chuck. I mean, you look at some of the things that we take for granted today in this culture that government is supposed to provide for us. Is, is, does the Constitution say government is supposed to provide everybody an education? No. No. Does it say that everybody's supposed to be provided health care under the Constitution? Nope. Does it say everybody's supposed to be supplied a retirement plan under the Constitution? No. Does it say that everybody is supposed to be entitled to whatever they feel that they should be entitled to under the Constitution? No, none of that's there. But the reason why we have it is because of positive law theory. Yes. Because with the changes in those constitutional amendments, we gave Congress and, by extension, the executive branch the power to be as expansive as they wanted to be. But the Constitution itself is a document that limits the authority of the government while setting up a government. And, of course, with the Bill of Rights, those first 10 and Amendment 27, uh, the 11 of the 12 that got ratified, what you're looking at are articles that say what a government authority, such as Congress, cannot do to the people. But starting in Amendment 12 to Amendment 26, you have the expansive, socialistic, democratic, I will use that phrase, zeitgeist that has taken over. Yeah. And that's why, instead of counting the number of years we've had a Constitution, we're now looking at how many years do we have left of being able to say that we actually have governance by this Constitution. The original Constitution was dealt some very severe wounds. Absolutely was. The, the uh, 14th Amendment is a severe wound. Severe wound. Because what did it do? It dismantled the sovereignty of the states. Now you'll you'll the Supreme Court says, oh no, the Tenth Amendment is still the Fourteenth didn't didn't dismantle the the Tenth, and the Tenth is basically says that all states retain their sovereignty, and uh, um, and all that. Uh, but the Fourteenth has been abused. Now, if you talk to people, that's not what the original purpose of the Fourteenth was. Uh, okay, let let's roll that back just slightly because I don't buy that argument that people give. Because, yes, the Tenth Amendment does say that any any authority not specifically enumerated in right. the Constitution to the federal government is retained by the states by the people, right? Yes. Our problem is Amendments 12 and following specifically enumerate unlimited ability for yes. the federal government to create law and take it out of the hands of the states. It, the Fourteenth Amendment basically made the Tenth Amendment a null letter in part you have to remember the 12th dismantled the way that's true the way that uh 
voting for president was done. That's true. Instead, uh, if you don't know this, folks, before the 12th Amendment, the number two vote getter in, in the electoral college is who became the vice president. You didn't run as a team. Right. And whoever became your vice president is who was the president of the Senate. That is correct. Uh, people say the vice president doesn't have any job. Yeah, he's the president. Pro t- uh, he's, he's the, president, he's of the, the Senate. president of the Senate. And what does that mean? Does he have a vote? Only if there's a tie. That's right. But he does preside over it and make sure that the rules are followed. Now, a lot of vice presidents have sort of like, nah, you guys run this thing. That's not what he's supposed to be doing. Right. He is supposed to be sitting up there at the podium watching over the, you know, they. we talk about majority leaders having all this power. No, that's that's actually the job of the vice president. Now, do the minority, majority and minority leaders have a lot of power? Of course they do. Because they whip their members and they do, you know, they have staffs that do all that and, and do all that and gather votes and that kind of thing. But the fact is that the vice president is supposed to be sitting there presiding over the body. That's true. That's an important job. Uh, you know, what does the president do if the guy of the other party, and remember, the parties weren't a big thing until after the 12th Amendment. <laughs> there were parties. There were... Ad- to be sure, there were factions. And Federalist, anti-federalist. Federalist, anti-federalist. Uh, uh, Federalist, Democrat, Republicans. Yes. Da, 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 yeah. And there were different factions inside those those uh, those groups. But the fact is, that dismantled. The 12th Amendment that allowed the president and the vice president to run as a team dismantled and created a lot of the animosities that came about and became the deep split between the parties. There were always splits, but there weren't these deep chasms between the parties until the election of 1828. I believe you're right. 1824 in there is when the party apparatuses got built by Andrew Jackson. Yes. Who was very unhappy because he'd gotten the majority... He'd gotten the plurality, let's put it that way, of electoral votes, and the presidency was handed to John Quincy yeah. Adams uh, in what was called the corrupt bargain. Okay, I don't want to go too deep into that, but it's important to understand where these party animosities come from. Uh, they they stem out of George Washington's cabinet, the disagreements about where and how much federal power, you know, how much... How much power the executive... The, ha- the Hamiltonian wing of, of his government versus the Jeffersonian wing of his government. Bingo. Yeah. That's where the two... Fl- and what's interesting is is that uh, uh, James Madison started out as an acolyte of Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton yes. as the big, the big federal power guy, and he saw the corruption that it was breeding, and he, he went over with Jefferson. And then later in his career, he went back the other way because he was president and he saw how much little power he actually had and wanted that power because he had a war he was trying to fight that he kind of started. Uh, sort of did and sort of didn't. It's a, a, The War of 1812 is very complex. But nonetheless, uh, a lot of things went on. And, uh, uh, but that's, that's the problem with the 12th. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, it essentially took the power out of the hands of the Electoral College 
and tied their hands about who they could vote for for vice president. Because remember, there there was no such thing as a bound vote. That's right. You did not have to you to uh, vote for a specific candidate. That's the whole point behind the electoral college. If something pops up about one of these people that make it becomes clear they're a scoundrel, you don't you didn't have to vote for them. That's right. You could vote for anyone. And we've had a couple of those uh, people voted for, uh, I'm trying to remember, somebody in one of the electoral college guys voted for somebody, oh gosh, uh, in the last one or the one before that? One before. Um, and it, somebody said, why? And he says, because I'm an elector, which means I get to, now different states have different laws, but in most states have it. You are a bound elector. You are bound to vote for the candidate that whose slate you were on. On the first ballot. On the first ballot. And I the only time there's ever been more than one ballot that I can think of is uh uh Hamilton or uh, Jefferson versus Adams. Right. Went to thirty seven 37 ballots. ballots. <laughs> 37 ballots in order to pick a president. Um, now, remember, the, the law is, and I heard a scenario today that's interesting you brought this up. I think that 37 ballots was in the House. Yeah, because that's where it gets kicked to yeah. where there's a tie. If if the electors vote and there's, a, and there's an electoral tie, and it goes immediately to the House. That's and, correct. And they vote until they, until they get a majority, not a plurality. They have to get a majority of votes. Okay, that being said, someone said, what if this election goes over to the House? And they, and they cited the situation that we've talked about on this show before, about every four years we talk about this, in the Electoral College, where the electors in Maine and Nebraska don't vote the same way we do here in Ohio. In other words, That's correct. the majority vote-getter gets the all Ohio's electoral votes. Right. Winner take all system. Winner take all system. It's a terrible system. Yes, it is. It's an awful system. It it disenfranchises you. And 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 concentrates power in the city. In the cities. And in the media. And in the media. Um that being said, Maine doesn't do that and Nebraska doesn't do that. Uh you take a uh you get remember the electoral college is constructed so that you get the same number of electrical uh, electrical Electoral votes as your congressional districts plus two for your senators. Okay. So every state has a minimum of three electoral votes. Now, Nebraska, they hand their their uh, electoral votes out by congressional district like the original design was. Same way with Maine. They hand them out by congressional district. And the majority vote getter gets the two senatorial votes. Right. So whoever got the majority in the state gets the two senatorial votes. All right. There was a scenario that popped up where it could be 269 to 269, equaling 538. Okay. Uh, Is that right? 538? Yeah, 538. Yes, it is. And it would pop it to the House of Representatives, and this person said, oh, you'd automatically think it would go... uh, it would go for the Democrat, right? Because the Democrat, because the House is democratically controlled. And this person said, "Yeah, it is." But in in the House of Representatives, they're required to vote by state. That's right. So every state delegation gets together for their one vote. 
That's right. And guess what? Majority, there are more states are more that states. have Republican majorities in Congress than Democrat majorities. Exactly. Including Ohio. Including Ohio. So it's very possible that it, one thrown to the House could go Republican. So don't despair that. Uh, folks, tell your friends to listen to this, this broadcast, because a lot of them will not understand that. There's a lot of despair about, you know, what's the scenario? You, I, you probably heard this too, Barry. Nancy Pelosi could be the the next president. Not in our lifetime. Not, it's not going to happen. First of all, you have, you, you're kind of stuck p- picking between the, the tied candidates, although you're not absolutely bound to that. Um, but that being said, it's probably, and Nancy's not going to be it. She's 80 years old. She has the same problem that the, uh, that Biden has the cognitive uh, abilities have faded shall we say um uh she's still politically savvy but she is not on the ball like she was once um and that being said um all kinds of things could now how are people going to try to sway the vote if that happens look today's September 17th Constitution Day, and again, we're we're recording this for September 19th, but it is September 17th, 2020. Today is the day that a group called, uh, uh, that uh, they're supposed to do a lay siege to the White House for 50 days. Well, I've been checking media since we've been on here, and I've not seen anything coming up about that yet. So Yeah. so Maybe they're going to do it in the dead of night. Uh, who knows what? Oh, I forgot. These are ex-college students. They probably haven't even gotten out of bed yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. But the, it's the same bunch that, that basically started the whole Occupy Wall Street. Right. Uh, Barry and I still laugh about this. We were down at Potbelly's, I think, on the right there on the square outside the Ohio State House one day. Yes, we were. And uh, they had a big sign up, two tents and a big sign, of Columbus is Occupied. Yeah, by four guys in a tent, and it's eighteen degrees outside. You you just occupy away, boys. I was I, I felt very warm and fuzzy about it. <laughs> That's right. It was like it was in January sometime, and we're like, you guys occupy. Well, I think at some point, not too long after that, the Columbus cops came in and said, "Okay, clear off, clear off your your little protest is over." Um, but uh, um, why would they pick September seventeenth? Well, because it's Constitution Day. And the Jacobite Rebellion. Uh, let's not forget that. Yeah, the Jacobite Rebellion, <laughs> um, which most people don't know what that is, even know what it is in American history. Uh, you and I have a, have an idea what it is. Uh, yeah. But, I, I, I probably know Scottish history almost as well as I know American history. Yeah, it's, a, uh, it's um, bring back the the, uh, the Stuarts to the throne is, is what they wanted to do on That's the Jacobite right. Rebellion. And it was... Uh, well, they're just trying to bring the Clintons back to the throne here. So, go. I mean, it, it, it fits. Well, you know, the shine's off that dime. Uh, about time. Yeah. <laughs> about time. <laughs> yeah, that's become a used coin. Um, and the whole... Uh, um, this is something we should... we. It's not really part of it, but it is. Uh, you know, the whole thing. If you pay attention out there... All of a sudden, there's a lot of action on recovering children being trafficked. And that's good. And that's real good. That's like an excellent Like thing. over 100. 
Yes. It may be getting higher than that at this point because it keeps going on. It's, they're keeping it under the radar. You wonder how they managed to figure it all out in the time frame that they figured it out in. And I wonder if it has anything at all to do with a certain multi-billionaire financier who had a jet and an island who mysteriously committed uh, Arkansas in prison and whose right-hand woman is now talking to the feds. Yes, and Ghislaine Maxwell, or however you pronounce her name, I don't... Ghislaine. Uh, Ghislaine. Ghislaine, whatever. Um, Maxwell has been, uh, it, it appears, has been uh, doing the canary thing. As they used to say in the prison movies, she sang like a canary and is continuing to sing, which means there's a whole lot of people in yeah. Hollywood and in and, Washington, D.C. who, who are, just realize they're in the depth of a coal mine with a gas leak. They're sweating bullets. Yep. And, in fact, it wouldn't shock me to find out that she had, at some point, hangs herself in prison. I'm thinking that they've probably taken better precautions with her than they did with Epstein because now that they realize what's going on and realize the extent of the documentation she can provide them. Well, like you said, we've now seen multiple interstate Break that breakups of child trafficking rings going on. And where was one of the largest? And if you're paying any attention, you're starting to see a number of illegal aliens who have been accused of imposition, molestation, child rape, all getting busted right now. It seems that all of the rats are getting corralled into the ship that they're going to sink on them. Yeah. And uh, I'm very, very pleased with that. Oh yeah. Well, where was one of the biggest uh, roundups of the of the kidnapped children in Georgia? Right here in Ohio. And here in Ohio too. Yes. Uh, last the last number I heard was approaching forty here. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Georgia was another one. Well, if you look at those, those are crossroads. That's right. Toledo is the second largest hub for child trafficking and sex trafficking in the country. Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, Buffalo, mm-hmm. Columbus, Cincinnati, um, all of those easy access to Toledo. Right, exactly. Um, it's a um, it's a major hub. Yep, and it, and it has to be. Um, and uh, um, I'm delighted that uh, they were able to capture this woman, and and she has decided that uh, I don't think it's going to get her any less time in the in the Hooskow. It better hadn't. Um, you know, uh, throw her in the deep dark dungeon and throw away the key. Well, it may be a smart move on her part too. The quicker you sing and the faster the feds start busting people, the more all those people have to go deeper into hiding, which means the less likely they're going to send somebody to kill you and get yes. caught doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's it's. But that being said, that's the kind of corruption that we get when, as a people, we ignore what's going on you get people like these guys who who pick september 17th and you again we're back to that number september 17th and constitution day yeah why 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 well marxists and their predecessors like for instance the french revolutionaries the um mm-hmm. who were uh called jacobins as well um for for a different reason um but uh, uh, the French revolutionaries loved to pick dates. Yes, they did. And why would they pick these dates? Well, they picked these dates 
because they had a religious significance to them. It's essentially the Marxists would and the pre-Marxists would pick these dates that were high holy days. If you've noticed in Europe, in the United States, we celebrate Labor Day on September 1st or thereabouts. Yep. And they tried to do that here. And everybody said, no, thank you. Why? Because there was a heavy Marxist influence in attempting to get May Day as Labor Day. Had nothing to do with holidays. Had nothing to do with any of that. It had to do with paying homage to organized labor on a what amounted to a Marxist holiday. And throughout Europe, May Day is a major day of demonstrations, violence, uh, all kinds of things, because it commemorates um, the founding uh, during the uh, uh, the Bavarian Illuminati. During and I don't want to get too far into the whole conspiracy theory thing, but that is the date that the Bavarian Illuminati was founded. Mm-hmm. In fact, you can find information on that. Uh, Adam Weiss helped. Um, you know, the Bavarian, don't kid yourself, the Bavarian Illuminati doesn't exist anymore. They've m- morphed into other things. These groups don't go away. They morph into other things. But if you read, the, for instance, the Communist Manifesto, how does he, how does Marx mark dates in that book? He marks them in terms of the revolutionary dates from the French Revolution. Yes. And if you're unfamiliar with the calendar, you can't tell what date he's talking about. You have to know the French revolutionary calendar and exactly what the French revolutionaries tried to do. They actually tried to remake the week. They tried to go over from a seven-day week, which God provided us with, to a 10-day week. Why? Because they were going to change everything. They wanted to completely disconnect from, from Judeo-Christian, from any value yeah. from the past, especially Judeo-Christian values. That's right. And this is why priests were uh, were murdered uh, or co-opted. There were priests who were revolutionaries. Most of those did not survive the switchover from uh, the original uh, the the assembly. Uh, with Robespierre and all that stuff. They didn't survive that because at the end of that, a lot of those guys like Robespierre, uh, he lost his head after they'd been busy chopping all these other people's heads off. They lost their heads and the Republic sort of settled into a, a dictatorship after that, uh, with Napoleon and the, and two other quote unquote senators, uh, on the job. And then Napoleon basically said, you guys are dismissed on the emperor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they were like, oh, okay. Yeah, okay, I guess we have yeah, to. Yeah, we'll give into that. Uh, but that's how those work. Uh, um, they love these dates because they take on a religious holiday significance. And what's the religion? It's the worship of the state. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And don't kid yourself, these guys are marking the state dates. Yes. And they want to co-opt the ones that are already out there. That's why September 17th. It's already out there. I I don't want to insult ladies and gentlemen in the audience, but I'll bet that about 90% of you did not know that September 17th was Constitution Day. As much as we've talked about it, I would hope that our audience would know that. Yeah, well, we've taught it in our, our Constitution classes, which were available to teach, by the way. Yep. Um, and uh, um, 
So we know that some, but I, I base that on the, the fact that when we bring it up in our class, nobody knows about it. You'll get one or two. That's true. We You'll get, get one we or get two that know it. Get it. Yeah. Um, and I can remember uh, when I was a kid, I tried to get, uh, I'm trying to remember what day it was. We tried to get a certain date declared. I'm trying to remember what it was now. What was the same day as UN Day? And we tried to get that declared United States Day. Oh, okay. And the city council would not go for it because they said, well, it's already UN Day. Uh, what better reason to declare it United States Day than it's UN Day? Yep. We didn't surrender our sovereignty to the UN, or we shouldn't have if we did. So those terms have to be thought of. Uh, you have to watch. Why, why do certain dates... Why do revolutionaries pick dates? And if you go back, just do a research on that particular date and you'll find out some hero of the revolution, quote unquote, will have been martyred on that day or whatever the language they do. Now, do we do we have some of that in our in our background? Sure, we do. We, we celebrate George Washington's birthday, although we celebrate now. We don't do it anymore. It's now President's Day, which is Correct. a combination of Lincoln and Washington's birthday. Um, I liked it better when it was Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday. Yes. Uh, because it cheapens it. It makes it into a day when you can uh, basically drink too much and not go to work on the night before. Well, you can do that almost any day if, well, you, you, could. if you really want to set your mind you to could, it. You could, but you still get paid for... Uh, <laughs> well, that's true. You get paid for that. <laughs> you know, oh, you, can, you can be hung over and, and get paid for being hungover, if that's what you do on your days off. That's not what I do. I do work around here. Days uh, off? What is that? Yeah, what's a day off? <laughs> what is a day off? We own our own businesses, Chuck. What is a day that's off? That's <laughs> true. Somebody said, when are you going to retire? I said, about oh, about two days before they throw dirt on the box. You know, I'm going to retire five minutes after I find the word retirement in the Bible. <laughs> there you go. Which... Folks, it's not in there. No. Neither is the word vacation. Uh, you know, So vacation and retirement are not biblical concepts. No. Um, does, that doesn't mean that you know you have to slave yourself to death for the rest of your natural life, or does it? We're all given work to do, and we're all said to run the race uh, to completion, to the, to the finish line, and to work while it is yet day. Well, yet day for us means while you're still alive. But that's, that's just a little public service announcement. Um, yeah. I do want to talk about, as we're talking about all this in Constitution Day, you know, we've had a couple of things that have happened, Chuck. We kind of, we've side-referenced it, and I think we referenced it this morning in our conversation with, uh, Mike. with Mike. Yeah. And that is, is that, you know, with what's been happening with the virus issue, whether you want to call it a pandemic or a fake-demic, um, we're starting to, I think we're getting, uh, let's say we're breaking over the cusp of it. We've reached the peak, Chuck. We're flattening the curve. <laughs> On the <laughs> overreach of certain governments. Yes. In Pennsylvania, Governor Tom Wolf, who is as big a leftist as you can get, basically did draconian shutdown measures, has now had a case that's been brought to the federal courts in Pennsylvania. And a federal judge has basically thrown his entire structure of the state of Pennsylvania's quote-unquote, official response in the emergency powers out the window. Basically said the entire scheme is unconstitutional and an infringement upon rights, and therefore it's null and void. Now, of course, the state's going to appeal this, and they're going to, you know. So, and even though these will be emergency-type appeals because of the immediacy of the issue, yep. 
it'll still drag on for weeks, probably through November. More than likely. More than likely. But it does raise some interesting questions here in Ohio. And I think it raised the questions loud enough, along with our General Assembly coming back in at the beginning of September here, Chuck, and passing a handful of bills that they sent to the governor, that this week, just a couple days ago, yesterday and on Monday and on Wednesday, Mike DeWine actually did something that I really didn't expect him to do. He signed two measures that actually limit the negative impacts of all of his emergency power orders that he's been throwing out there. Now, unfortunately, it does nothing about the mask mandate yet, nor does it do anything about the school mandates yet. But what they passed were House Bill 606, which is a bill to basically say that a business or a religious institution or other places cannot be held liable and sued if someone comes in and then they contract corona and supposedly gets traced back to the business because right you know if they're following their regular procedures etc that basically it's a it's a tort liability defense that's something the small businesses have been looking for especially the restaurants it's also going to help the churches and other places Another thing that's going to help the churches is another bill that was passed, and it was sent to the governor, and this was to reiterate the constitutional separation of powers. It's House Bill 272. In this bill was an amendment added that basically said that no public official. None. No public official. That means not the governor, not the director of the Department of Health, not the local health districts, not the county commissioners, not the city council or the mayor, not the city health department, not the township trustees, no official can close churches. So in Ohio, we have to now, of course, these did not have emergency clauses in them, so it takes 90 days before they're effective. So it'll be next year almost before they actually go into effect. Yes, And a lot of things can happen. Yes, Yes, but. but. Now, part of the reason Mike DeWine signed those two bills is because the state of Ohio has been hit with a similar lawsuit that what Pennsylvania already has ruled upon, that the entire scheme is unconstitutional and is an, is an abuse of power, it is an overreach, it is a violation of the separation of powers, and that it has to be ended forthwith. DeWine's trying to set up a case that we're trying to be responsive. That's the only reason he signed these two bills, Chuck. Yep. Like, I'm, I, folks, I've been at this for 25-plus years. I see through the smokescreen. This is a cover-myself moment. I will sign these bills because I don't think they're going to do as mu- too much damage to what I'm trying to do, but it allows me to go into court and say, we're being responsive to the needs of the citizenry by protecting them from the businesses from lawsuits. So you wouldn't have had to protect them in the first place had you not shut them down, had you not put yeah. them through a draconian regulatory system, and had you not told everybody, oh, you're in a county that we've determined is a red county, you have to wear a mask everywhere you go in public. Had you not adopted a paradigm that was false, known to be false, it's been, look, this is an argument that a lot of churches are having about the whole mask mandate. Do we comply? Do we not comply? Do and in my I would argue, 
and I have argued in my own church, that we say nothing. We say nothing about the mask mandate and leave it up to the individual to decide whether they want to be protected, quote-unquote protected, this way or not. Because, as we know, yes, the whole mask mandate, the whole social distancing mandate, the whole closing mandates are based on a model that was exposed as a fraud in March. And yet we're still, we are still building regulation <clears throat> on a model, again, that was determined to be a fraud. And in fact, the person who developed the model lost his job at King's College in London. Partially because he he was he, his married lover was stepping out during the lockdown in order to have a tryst with him, and they got caught. They got caught. They got caught. Chuck, I want to give you another piece. I don't think you've seen this piece yet, but this just happened on Tuesday. Okay. And I believe, actually, it is something that DeWine has done that is a major mistake if he wants to continue on this ridiculous path he's been on. Headline. Trump exempts, or excuse me, DeWine exempts Trump from mask mandate. Okay, now here's the opening of the article. This is uh, this was in the Sandusky Register to, uh, today, and it was from Tuesday when the when the governor and why my phone just shut down. I don't. There it is. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I, it just locked up for a second. The headline says the DeWine administration gave the green light to President Donald Trump late Tuesday, saying it would not enforce social distancing crowd size limitations or the state's mask mandate if Trump comes to Ohio and holds a political rally okay now let me continue on because this is the this is where the money note is President Trump has always welcomed in Ohio Melanie Amato a press secretary for the Ohio Department of Health told the register after deadline on Tuesday quote while we are encouraging the limit of 10 people in mass gatherings political rallies are protected by the First Amendment and are exempt unquote I got news for Miss Amato the State Department of Health, and the governor. It's not just political rallies that fall under the First Amendment. It's yes. every individual's particular right to gather, to uh, gather together. Let me read the First Amendment. I think we should end on this note, Chuck. Yes. First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's the reason why DeWine had to sign House Bill 272. Or abridging the freedom of speech, ding, 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 or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble. Didn't say in groups less than 10. And it didn't say if you're protesting, you're an ex you're, you, this covers you, but if you're not protesting, you can't. And to petition the government for a redress of grievances which is what the lawsuit is all about. Exactly. And I believe that the Ohio Department of Health and the governor's office just gave the nicest piece of ammunition to those who filed the lawsuit yeah. against them, that if you're not going to say that this mandate holds for a political rally, then it doesn't hold for a backyard picnic, it doesn't hold for a church service, and it certainly has not been upheld for Antifa rioters. It certainly doesn't hold for a football game in Ohio Stadium. Exactly. Which they just voted to reinstate. Folks, learn your Constitution. Take back your government. And the beauty of it is the Ohio Constitution says virtually 
the same thing. Yes, absolutely. The Bill of Rights and the Ohio Constitution are almost are ver- they're word for word. Yeah. Uh, all, all, all but, all but a couple of phrases. But yes, yeah, virtually the same thing, folks. Learn your constitutions, learn your rights. Yeah, take back your government. Don't fall for the falsehood of the experts. It's the it's the exposure of the absurdity of the whole lockdown thing by the by proof of exception. Absolutely. So. You know what we think. We want to know what you think. www.principledpolicy.com. That's principledpolicy.com. And join us again next week for another Principles and Policies.